With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello, friends. Ed McGrogan and Steve Tigner back with another edition of the Tennis.com podcast. Steve, I wanted to start because I tend to lean on you for your musical acumen. Uh, we, we had some words about David Bowie in a prior podcast, maybe some of your uh, parting thoughts um, on Prince. Well, the one thing from a tennis standpoint, you know, he he um, came to the French Open last year. Yeah, there were some photos of that. That was pretty well documented. And, and I say he's probably the, you know, he pretty much stole the show with his look, with uh, the scepter came with. Uh, so, you know, I think that's that says it all. Even he could, you know, he could steal the show from Rafa at the French Open. Um, with really no other connection to tennis, just by showing up. Um, but I was a fan of his through the you know through the eighties and nineties, and and it's um, amazing how still how how young he was. Um, fifty seven, I believe. He died just fifty seven. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, definitely a guy who um, I remember. You know, was a big fan of as a kid and. And pretty much was a guy that everyone loved who who liked who liked music at all. You know, no matter what, no matter what your basic style was, you could kind of people kind of came together with Prince. Yeah, we, we certainly have seen that uh, the past few days. It's uh, been certainly an outpouring, to say the least. Um, so you know, with that, I, I think we'll we'll move on. But I. Uh, would be remiss not to mention that, of course. Let's start with someone who you just uh, prop, you know, segued into in a very roundabout way, Rafa. He uh, he's done a lot since we've last talked. He's won Monte Carlo. He backed it up in Barcelona. That you know that in and of itself is nothing new to him. He's he's done that double amazingly, I believe, eight times and has won both events nine times and. You know, after really kind of losing it all in a very uh, tongue-in-cheek way, and, you know, this is only relative to a player of Rafa's caliber and what he's done in his career, you know, after kind of, after a year in which he didn't win any European clay events before the French Open, you know, I'm wondering if, and as we're seeing this kind of mini run going on, you know, I'm wondering, you know, do the did these warm up events mean a lot more to him this year? And you know that is probably in in stark contrast to Novak Djokovic, who is you know really only focused, I think, on Paris. And I think Rafa really has, has needed to build himself back, sort of brick by brick, 
and we've seen that over the past couple weeks at least for sure yeah you know he talked about after he won in Monte Carlo he talked about one thing he was happy with is now he's played two good full weeks this year he included Indian Wells where he made the semis and then Monte Carlo so he's really starting from still from the basics just playing a good week of tennis showing he can string together wins I think that's that's where he's starting from he's not even you know I don't think he's really thinking about the French Open he's obviously won it enough times not to worry about it but also I think you know he's still going week to week trying to build from the foundation of 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 playing you know just putting matches together I also think mentioning Djokovic I wonder if Djokovic losing early in Monte Carlo Nadal was scheduled to play him in the semis there I wonder if that just freed up Rafa a little you know the mm-hmm. the lack of confidence from Rafa against a lot of players I think it comes it comes you know mostly from total lack of confidence he has had against Djokovic rightfully for the last couple of years he's lost six straight matches he hasn't won a set in six matches you sort of feel like Djokovic's presence um, by himself just in the tournament changes it for Rafa and, and then him losing to somebody else you know, you immediately felt like Rafa just felt better about his game, knowing he wasn't going to have to suffer another defeat to Djokovic. Or just didn't have him looming over him because, you know, since then, since that Djokovic has lost, Nadal has played much better. Yeah, you know, it's amazing that, um, you know, confidence is a word we've already used a couple times already here. And, you know, I know that in tennis and especially when it comes to players like Roger Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, um, we sort of don't apply all the all the conventional rules of, of really any athletic endeavor to them because we see them as such, as so superior to so many of the players, both now and potentially even in, in history. And, uh, you know, what has gotten me about this little Rafa resurgence and even when you think back to the predicament that Federer was in back in, I want to say 2013, it may have been 2014, where you know it was it was a time of year when he traditionally would have no issues winning matches, tournaments, um, and you know suddenly, almost on a dime, it was you know Roger Federer was was struggling to put together a good week of tennis, and that's you know has been the case. Um, up until recently with Rafa right now. And, you know, for all the titles that, that he's won, for all the kind of, uh, you know, all the, really just all the, what he's amassed over his career, it, even at this age, you know, it, the muscle memory and the, and the memory of winning can only really take you so far. I think it just proves really how mental this game as physical a game as it is and Rafa embodies that more than most players ever have um, it's such a mental struggle with these guys and uh, and I think that's perhaps one of the the biggest hurdle that Nadal seems to have cleared at least right now yeah it seems like in 2010 2011 Federer started to lose to players he'd never lost to before you know people he had records 10 and 0 12 and 0 against people like Burdich and Baghdadis then he started to lose to them, and then you thought, well, this is the start of a decline. And in a way, it was, but but he bounced back from that, became number one again in 2012. Maybe this is sort of Rafa's phase in that the last couple of years he's lost to a bunch of players he'd never lost to before. And 
And in, so far in this clay season, he's turned it around on those guys. Dominic Team, he lost to recently. He beat him. Vavrinka, he lost to a couple times for the first time in his career. He beat him. Andy Murray lost to him on clay for the first time. Beat him. Fognini lost to him three times last year, and beat him. Nishikori lost to him last year. Beat him. So it's it's sort of raw for revenge story. Yeah, yeah, revenge story on clay that I think Federer also went through around the same age like he was sort of prematurely buried uh and maybe nadal is, is having that same same thing happen to him now rafa also with some you know off-court news as well and this just came through today this is tuesday when we're recording this um you know since all of the drug allegations uh not really allegations is the wrong word but it's not to say that Rafa hasn't been questioned uh, all throughout his career as, as any sort of athlete in his position would be. But really, since things have picked up steam, especially with the Sharapova um, you know, drug test that has gone really wrong, um, and you know, Rafa has been so outspoken uh, before in declaring any sort of connection to uh, performance-enhancing drugs, um, he's he's gone. He's made so much mention of that he's never failed any test. Um, but I think he's he's arrived at a point where he's just he's tired of really dealing with it anymore in the conventional, you know, just kind of keep your mouth shut and just let the process play out. He uh, he's for one he has sued one of his accusers, and this dealt, uh, ties to the. Um, I want to say uh, the French Tennis Federation. I'm blanking a little bit on the name and the connection. The other instance today, he came out and said that he he wants every one of his tests, his entire biological passport, um, opened up, revealed for anybody to come in and and, and look through uh, any time they wish. And uh, it's a pretty, you know, I think on one hand, it, it's certainly a noble statement I think it's probably the the best statement that you can make as an athlete if you want to just get out in front um, of the story as best you can just you know that he has nothing to hide of course um, the only thing I, I I sort of wonder about is if is if in any way this sort of just opens himself up to even more scrutiny in some you know roundabout way but you know Rafa has really um, made a push to kind of just to to get away from what's been said about him for many many years now, just and I wonder kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, he's always hated that. Obviously, that he's been I think he's been the sort of primary target for people's insinuations and and of course there hasn't been any proof of anything. Um, and he hated the fact that Agassi admitted that he tested positive for. Um, for crystal meth, for for it had failed a drug test and it had been covered up because he, because it, he, Rafa thought it made all tennis players look suspicious, um, and he's and he's called for his his test to be public in the past. He has called for the Puerto operation, um, the Spanish drug testing results that were that were um, that had been sealed to be unsealed and made public. Um, I think this time finally. You know, he, uh, the woman who was the minister of health in France, made a specific allegation that he'd failed the drug test in 2012. So I think he thought this is, you know, this is a chance. You know, this is just to, to say something so specific from somebody on a position of authority. Uh, this was just something he he felt like he had to finally 
he had to finally fight in public. Um, but you're right that I, mean, I think that's good of him, and and, and he sh- you know he has a right to do that and should do that. Um, downside, like you said, is it keeps the story alive for him. You know, it's just you know it's going to be in the news now for him, and I'm sure that's something he had to think about and had to consider. Uh, so his name will be in some in a way again still still associated with with doping through no real fault of his own but but that keeps that story alive the other interesting thing is Andy Murray has been criticized was criticized last week for talking about doping at all about his suspicions not of any specific player but of opponents of his that he says he wondered about whether they were uh, whether they were using steroids and he was criticized by Boris Becker and other people in tennis for doing that but I think Murray was also right in in being honest you know not naming anybody specifically, that would be wrong, but to, but to be honest about the fact that, yep, yeah, everybody has suspicions of pro athletes now. There's no reason to hide it or to pretend that it doesn't exist. I, you know, I think Murray's right to, to acknowledge the fact that it exists and it could exist in tennis. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting in that we've heard uh, comments and we've heard positions given by most of the um, – major names in the sport here all of them seem to um all of them seem you know obviously the intention to 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 clean up the game is is at the the heart of what they're saying they all i think have taken different paths to to get to that point and you know there was even some mention of you know Djokovic earlier uh, last week saying that he took it as if no one has being tested positive that there is no issue and he was criticized for that um by uh, dick pound the former wada chief saying comparing that um line of reasoning to something that lance armstrong would have said or did say before his uh he was exposed about everything that happened uh with him and you know this has been such a tumultuous year already for tennis um it really started right off the top with the match-fixing uh, allegations from the reports from BuzzFeed and the BBC. You have, obviously, the bombshell Sharapova announcement, um, and this really has not gone away in any substantial way. I mean, is there is it even possible to have kind of an end game to all this um, in, in a sport like tennis? Is it just too... Uh, and this is a question that probably is is un- is really unable to be answered in a in a meaningful way. But you know, I, I almost wonder what the sport go what the sport's next move is, uh, because in every instance it, it does seem to be um, you know somewhat reacting to what has happened. And and I think because of that, in almost every situation, tennis doesn't come off looking uh, very good on itself for doing that. Yeah, you can't win either way. Well, first of all, like, you know, we need to say that Pound was wrong for comparing Djokovic to Lance Armstrong. You can criticize Djokovic's answer as naive, but there's no reason to to go all the way and say that it reminded him of that he you know bring Lance Armstrong into it and compare Djokovic to Lance Armstrong. That's that's too much. Um, but you're you're right. There's no there's no way out in a way because if if nobody tests positive, that just sh- that just shows to people people are going to be suspicious that they're not testing well enough. And then if somebody tests positive like Sharapova, then immediately people say, well, we were 
we were right, the top players, you know, they do test potters, they are using these things. So there's no, there's no, um, yeah, there's no solution to it. I think tennis has done a good job of going to the biological passport, which cycling went to. Um, the fact that Sharapova did pass, test positive and it became public, I think, is is a good sign for the sport that, it, that a big star can be caught, you know, can be caught in this and won't be covered up necessarily. Um, I think just testing in, in as well as possible, and that's what the authorities say. That's all that really. That's what you can do, and 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 these and never there's no, should never be a sense that tennis is above this. I think mm-hmm. that's something that tennis has tried to try to put itself above as a as a as a sort of upper crust sport that would never be involved in this. But there's no reason to believe that either. You just you know it's, yeah. I think it's more coming to grips with and accepting the realities of of any sort of high. Uh, any sort of venture like this that that these these problems are out there and it's it's openly discussed now and I think it, it it's probably a topic that never even would have been um, talked about you know not that long ago and you know in that sense maybe some progress has been made yeah uh, so um, I want to save Madrid and what you know maybe where Rafa goes next on the court for in just a, for just a little few more minutes but I wanted to also talk about uh, Anjali Kerber, who also factored into last week's results of note. She defended her clay title in Stuttgart, um, won another nice Porsche car for her efforts. She, you know, Kerber to me, I was, when I was down in Charleston um, watching her, you know, begin clay, her clay campaign, that was on um, the Hartrue down there, of course. You know, I got to thinking really about the the landscape of the WTA at this very moment, and you know, we I think because because Kerber is that first time Slam winner, um, the Australian Open of all the Slams, even though it has gained in prestige dramatically, uh, we I think we still sometimes compartmentalize its champions as. You know, maybe a maybe the event where you can most likely see a, sort of a, a a breakthrough from the established um, you know the established stars of the game to win that major. Um, but you know, I think overall the point I'm trying to make is that Kerber can Kerber's performance could still be overlooked as you know in 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 comparison to who else is out there still with Serena with Azarenka having a nice start to the year. But when you think about it, and you really see that Sharapova's kind of out of the picture, we've had really bad seasons thus far from, um, you know, you name it, Kvitova, Halep, Muguruza, um, pretty, most of the, the top ten, with a few rare exceptions, has not delivered on what we think they can do. Um, Kerber has a pretty big opportunity to make this year really her own. And um, we see that here uh, in Stuttgart, and I think it's—I don't think it's out of line to suggest that should, she should be one of the main favorites at the French too. So I, I, maybe catching up with Kerber is the the topic right now, and, and maybe what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, she's sort of reminding me of of Stan Wawrinka. I was—I um, had forgotten. I was amazed when I was looking—I was looking at Rafa and 
Kerber's um, results from the weekend and and just was remember reminded that Kerber's only a year younger than Rafa. She's really almost feel like she's just getting started. Rafa's won Barcelona nine times uh, at the same time. Kerber defended the her first title of her career at any tournament in Stuttgart. So she, it's almost like it's a little like Stan Wawrinka situation where he won the Australian Open at 28, 29 um, for the first time, kind of came out of nowhere, and then, but has stuck around, obviously, for the, for the two years since, has made himself a consistent contender. I think that's, I think that's within Kerber's reach to kind of, to kind of do the same thing. And I think she's especially interesting on clay. She's had more success on grass at Wimbledon semifinals there than, than she has at the French, but I think her game works well for Clay. She won in Charleston last year. Now she's won Stuttgart twice. Um, I think she this spring she started to recover from from the sort of higher expectations that she had as a Slam champion. She made the f- semis in Miami. Now she's done this. I think she's you know she's someone who really should feel like she has a chance to win the French Open. Vavrinka has won the French Open. Um, there's I think Kerber. I think she's still far and away a third favorite behind Serena and Azarenka, but neither Serena and Azarenka are natural clay quarters either. So, so the next month will be will be interesting for Kerber. You know what what kind of staying power does she have? Yeah, I, I love the game. You, know, you have I, I don't think the left uh, I don't think the uh, left handedness should be discounted. Um, you know, a very physical player when attrition is one of the qualities that works well on clay um i think uh i I think there is a lot of potential there for kerber who come who you know comes back to europe after really a pretty much a whirlwind start to the year um i think that you know i think that stuttgart title is pretty important in that respect to kind of really sort of justify and reaffirm you know her I, i think even coming off of a a slam there is that tendency that you kind of have to back it up in some way to you know to really uh, know that you can do it again on that you know and not to compare Stuttgart to Roland Garros by any means but um, it's a it's a good tournament it was a good week for Kerber and um, you know I think this this kind of segues well into where things go next you know the bigger the biggest two clay events. Madrid and Rome uh, will take place in May. Everybody will be there from the men's and women's tour. Just we, I guess we don't know for sure on the men's side. We're still really waiting on Federer's commitment to that event. Um, Djokovic, you know, we've heard nothing to suggest that he won't be there, especially with him taking an early loss in in Monte Carlo. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll see Serena Williams, of course. So you would uh, certainly think as well. It, it seems like it's been a little while um, since we've heard from her uh, on the court. And you know, after what we've seen over the past really two months or so between uh, the clay and Rafa, you know, Azarenka's really coming in, coming back to you know, be a, a tour force as we've all expected her. Yeah, I guess the biggest question is, and you raised it to me before this, is you know, should the runaway number ones be worried at this time? Is it time to say, well, maybe we're at a turning point with things? Yeah, I think um, you know you wouldn't have said that with Djokovic as you know as of could never have said it as of a couple of weeks ago, but 
but these two weeks have been you know have have changed things a little i think federer even he was he was talking about the french open coming up he called Djokovic the favorite but nadal the player to beat so i don't know he's obviously on the fence there he obviously sees rafa as as making a big challenge um and you know Djokovic still has never won the french so you have to keep that in the back of your mind i think i think now we could see i think it could go you could even spin it the other way. Djokovic now has a definite challenge. You know, mm-hmm. he's not he's not alone. You know, it almost felt like he was alone at the top in Indian Wells in Miami. There really wasn't there wasn't wasn't much else anybody else to seriously challenge him from his from the top tier. But now he's got Rafa. Maybe that gives him something to focus on. Maybe that maybe that takes a little pressure off and and and, and helps him, of course. But you know, I think he, it focuses him for Madrid, I think, and Rome. He was, he was. I think if he had won Monte Carlo like la, like last year, he might have skipped Madrid the way he did the way he did last season. Now you know he knows you know he's he's in for another battle. So maybe maybe that helps him in a way. With Serena, I think she's you know she, this whole year has been a little bit of has been a little bit of you know uncertainty. She hasn't won a tournament so far. This will be her first one on clay. Um, she's taken some surprising losses. Kerber and Azarenka both beating her last year in Madrid. She got beaten badly by Kvitova, who who's won that tournament twice and who will be a favorite there again this time. So, you know, with Djokovic, she's still out in front of the field. Serena, you don't know. You almost feel like she's kind of starting over here in Madrid with with her least favorite surface, having not being quite as not being as dominant, nearly as dominant this year as she was last year. Yeah, I think that reset uh, button analogy might apply very well to to these two. And this month is really kind of almost the start of a new season for them because of uh, a variety of circumstances. But um, and as you've put it before, you know, this time of year, once the clay, once we move off of um, hard courts and into Europe onto the clay. This really is the heart of the tennis season and where ultimately much of it is determined in terms of titles, in terms of points, in terms of its story. And I think that's what we, I think what we're most looking forward to um, in the month of May. And I think that's where, that's where we ought to leave it this week. And uh, it's a pretty light week on the tours, and I think that's not necessarily the worst thing because we're in for... Uh, a bit of a gauntlet uh, in terms of tournaments, one after the other, um, and you know it's a it's a fast-moving month of May, even on the slow clay. So, for Steve Tigner, I'm Ed McGrogan. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 